A British judge rules Julian Assange cannot be extradited to the United States where he would face life in prison in America's supermax torture hellholes. And Donald Trump seeks to seize power following his loss to Joe Biden. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's January 5th, 2021, our first show of the new year. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum and our host, Brian Becker. Brian, we're starting a new year. It's a new year. It's a new year. Many, many very important stories. Julian Assange, of course, ordered by a judge not to be extradited from London to the United States. We have the runoff today in the Georgia Senate race. Tomorrow, Donald Trump and his uh, supporters will make their, uh, I I would have said last gasp effort, but I don't think it's the last gasp, effort to overturn the election results. We have a looming crisis with Iran. We have a lot to talk about, Nicole. But before we get started, I do want to say, again, we could not be doing this show without the support of those who are donating to us, subscribing to us on Patreon, uh, who are our patrons, the people who help us get going with the GoFundMe uh, startup money. We have exciting new plans to expand the show, which we're going to announce in the next couple of days and weeks, if we have additional support from those who support this show. So again, there will be an important announcement or announcements in the coming days. But again, we can't do it without our supporters. We're so excited that so many people are listening and uh, so many people are subscribing and becoming patrons. Um, if you're not yet a patron or if you know someone who listens and who isn't yet a patron, please, uh, please help us expand programming and you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program. Brian, do you want to get started with Julian Assange? Yes, let's get started with the case of Julian Assange. Uh, Julian has been the victim of arbitrary detention in the Ecuadorian embassy for more than seven years. He's in Belmarsh prison. Uh Yesterday, in a very big, shocking, surprise ruling, the British judge uh, hearing the case decided that Julian Assange should not be extradited to the United States. She decided, in fact, that he should be immediately discharged. Tomorrow, uh, his lawyers and Julian will be back in court and we'll find out exactly what happens. But this saga for Julian Assange. Well, it may not be ending, but the, uh, a new and important chapter may be opening. We spoke with Joe Loria. He is editor-in-chief of Consortium News. Joe is not only uh, someone who has followed the case objectively and with objective journalistic integrity, he's also been a champion for the release of uh, Julian Assange as a publisher, as a member of the media, 
As a member of the media who did a great service by exposing U.S. war crimes, we talked to Joe Loria about what this decision by the British judge means. Let's listen. Joe, you have been a principal leader in the international struggle to free Julian Assange. Uh, He's been in detention by one means or another for almost a decade, perhaps as long as a decade. Let's talk about the decision of Magistrate Vanessa Baritzer on Monday. I'm looking at your outlet, your media outlet, Consortium News. She rejected a U.S. extradition request on both indictments for WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. Magistrate Vanessa Baritzer on Monday ordered Julian Assange discharged based on a severe risk of suicide. She said U.S. authorities did not convince her that they could prevent him from taking his life. Before reaching her conclusion, Baritzer agreed with virtually every point in the U.S. favor until she came to the condition of his health and what extradition for the U.S. would mean. Baritzer brought Assange down a dark alley before her surprise decision at the end. The moment the judge said Assange would be discharged, the courtroom camera swung to him sitting in the glassed-in dock. He showed no reaction. What drama, Joe. What an amazing moment. It really was. First, I want to say I'm in the forefront of the international movement to report the story, let alone support his release, support the facts of this story. We have had Consortium News. We were one of the few media outlets that were interested in getting video access to directly to the courtroom. So we watched it live all through September and yesterday's dramatic uh, judgment day, as Baritza herself called it. I was struck there that Assange did not uh, have any emotional reaction whatsoever. Unlike many, uh, most of his supporters, all of them maybe, who were out in the streets outside the Old Bailey in London in in a jubilant way uh, celebrating this decision. Um, Baritza, I think, uh, there's been a lot of fair criticism and I uh, by press freedom advocates, of which I consider myself one, that this case was uh, very good for Assange, but not good for the free press issues involved. But my view is it's uh, unrealistic to have thought that Baritza would say in her judgment that the U.S. was criminalizing journalism, uh, that uh, the espionage charge violated the U.S. First Amendment. Uh, even if she knew that this prosecution case was very weak, which it was, and I think she may have understood that, I don't think a British judge representing a British state would ever defy the U.S. in, in that way. I mean, the countries joined at the hip. It would be something of a diplomatic disaster, and maybe on the on the, not maybe the worst since the Suez 1956 crisis. So she, but she did defy Washington by not turning over their man to her. And um, I think that this is the, really the important issue is that she saw the conditions. Maybe you can't tell what's in her mind, but it seemed that she got a little emotional during those weeks of testimony and even in her reading of the judgment on Monday uh, when there was copious uh, evidence put forward by defense witnesses of the conditions, A, of U.S. prisons, particularly Supermax and under the Special Administrative Measures, or SAMS, which she herself in her judgment said that she uh, believed that, in fact, he would come under that. And those conditions are so harsh 
this virtual isolation from any other human being. You're allowed one telephone call a month. You could barely speak to your lawyers and not in the same room, but through a grill uh, or under under the food slot. So, I mean, it's she was, I think, moved by that. Anybody who has an open mind would be. The horrific conditions of a federal prison in uh, when a espionage uh, defendant or a convicted person is subjected to these measures because uh, of an espionage charge, which, of course, he's been charged with. And that coupled with lots of testimony from doctors who had examined Assange and others who spoke in general about autism, about being uh, on the autism spectrum, Asperger's, but also the facts of the case were that Assange had tried to commit suicide when he was younger. There's a lot of stuff we didn't report during because we were asked by uh, the defense, the, every, all the reporters were asked to, to not report some of his medical conditions, but he had tried to commit suicide. Two of his grandparents uh, did commit suicide. He uh, was found with a razor blade in his cell at Belmarsh Prison and then with a rope that he could have hung himself with. Uh, one of the prosecution witnesses, and there were a few of them, tried to say, A, that his suicidal tendencies could be managed by medicine, uh, and he also uh, did not come forward truthfully and knowing that uh, this information about his uh, attempts at suicide in the prison had been known to the prison officials. So I think she looked at those two things and put him together. The man is clearly suicidal. He'd called the Good Samaritan line in Britain, the suicide hotline we would call in the States, uh, numerous times, and it helped him. And she saw that there was, you could not deny he is suicidal, and you could not deny the conditions of U.S. prisons. Put the two together, he wouldn't last very long. That's what she concluded. Now, it is a way for her to make a decision that looks humane, and it is humane, and it's something to be celebrated, while at the same time not challenging at all, except on a few points. The entire U.S. argument that he's not a journalist, he wasn't engaging in journalism, he was endangering informants, he, he conspired with Chelsea Manning to crack a, uh, to break into a U.S. computer when she already had legal access to all these documents, uh, as the indictment itself says. It seemed like she was reading from the indictment, this judgment. She did not challenge the U.S. on any of these very serious press freedom issues, national security issues. Of course, uh, in order to extradite someone from Britain to the United States, this, the crime that he's alleged to have committed uh, by the Americans would have to have been a crime in Britain. And unfortunately, in the 1989, the amendments, the 1989 Official Secrets Act took away a uh, public interest defense and also expanded from just government officials, but to any person who possesses and disseminates classified information, which is what the Espionage Act says, of course. So there's equivalency there between the two. So she could f find that he broke the law, and technically he has violated that. But any person who's downloaded a WikiLeaks document and sent it to their friends and reads it is also breaking the espionage act. Because especially if you forward it onto a friend, you're possessing it and you're forwarding it. And these documents from WikiLeaks that were classified are still classified. They've never been declassified, even if they're now in the public. So she would never say, uh, again, that the you, that the uh, he was being criminalized for was absolutely journalistic activity. That's the dis dis depressing part of this ruling. Uh, but he's free. He's not free yet. And uh, if you want me to talk about what's happening now in terms of whether he'll be released or not. Now, she said this word, and here's the quote, I ordered the discharge of Julian Paul Assange. Those were the last words of this 132-page uh, ruling, Brian. I ordered the discharge of Julian 
Paul Assange. I had to look up the word discharge because I couldn't believe what happened afterward, which we suddenly uh, took into account. The U.S. said they would probably appeal. They have said they will. And she then said, well, I would have to take that into consideration about whether to let him out of remand inside Belmarsh Prison, A. And then she did offer the defense to put forward right then and there on Monday a application for bail. They decided they wanted to wait two days, and that will be on Wednesday. There will be the bail application put forward to the court. I would find it really hard to believe she would not let him go for the very reason that she's uh, – denied the extradition on mental health grounds, and there's physical health issues here as well. He's staying in Belmarsh. is not only uh, he's in danger of, of the virus, which has, I think, had about 30 cases in Belmarsh already, but also because he's suicidal. So if he goes back to his family, perhaps for an ankle bracelet, perhaps he will have to agree not to communicate during the appeals process. In other words, no tweeting, no articles. But anyway, the man is in such bad shape, he's going to need some time to recover and get his health back. So he may have a self-imposed uh, gag or the court may uh, require that for him to be let out. And I'm sure they'll take that for him to get out of that those harsh conditions and be back with his partner and his two children. And uh, that's something to celebrate, even if there was no victory on the side of the press freedom. But again, I never expected that. So I think this is the best possible outcome we could have had. Yeah. And Joe, I do have to let our audience know that uh, while you have, as you said, been a crusader for uh, proper coverage of Julian Assange as opposed to the demonized, caricatured, stereotyped, and hostile, politicized coverage of Julian and his case, uh, you have also been an advocate for his release. And I have to, and we all have to take our hats off to you and 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 there are others with you who have really led the charge. We have tried to pitch in and do a little bit, but you have done so so much. And I think without this, without the legal team, without the political support, without uh, you know this David and Goliath fight where there was there were many many Davids uh, and Davidas who uh, came together to to fight for Julian. This could never, ever, ever have happened. And again, for our audience, in the way I'd like to sort of just take us out on this interview, the the historical irony, Joe Loria, that uh, Donald Trump just pardoned the Blackwater mercenaries who murdered Iraqi civilians willy-nilly uh, in Iraq, in Baghdad. Uh, they're set free Julian Assange still in Belmarsh prison, the man who, along with WikiLeaks, helped reveal these U.S. war crimes in Iraq. It says so much about the real sort of state of so-called justice in the world, and especially when it comes to the U.S. criminal justice system. Your final comments. Yes, absolutely. That was horrific about the Blackwater. And it also, this whole case underscores that the War criminals that were exposed by WikiLeaks, by Chelsea Manning, the source, and Julian Assange, the journalist, particularly that collateral murder video in Iraq, none of those pilots whose voices are heard and are easily identifiable uh, ever faced investigation, let alone charges for war crimes, while the source and the journalist both wound up in prison, and Assange still is tonight in a prison. So that tells you, again, what how upside down the world is. And we have a judge like Barreto who will never go against the interests of the state, uh, but, but feels perhaps that 
you know, the individual gets caught up in this powerful and corrupt system. Sometimes we got to let them, we, they get crushed. So we got to have a humanitarian uh, uh, release for this person. But we're never going to say that uh, what he did was journalism and that it was uh, such an unfair uh, prosecution. They won't go that because that undermines the system, the power that they draw for their own significance as individuals in that system. So they'll let the person off, as they did Chelsea Manning, Obama commuting her sentence. But Because I think underneath they know it was wrong, but they can't challenge the power that sustains themselves. That's Joe Loria. Joe is editor-in-chief of Consortium News. Again, we'll continue to follow the case of Julian Assange. Uh, Joe Loria was right. The judge ruled that Julian should not come to America's hellholes. European sensibilities and world sensibilities are disturbed by the barbaric circumstances of those who are inside of America's uh, concentration camps, America's prison system. Uh, Again, uh, we're going to continue to follow that case. But he was so eloquent, Nicole, at the end when he said, the judge ruled for Julian, but she could not do it in a way that would defy the power of the U.S., the, the power that U.S. imperialism exercises over all British power. Anyway, let's turn to another big story. Uh, Esther, there is the Senate runoff in Georgia. Hundreds of millions of dollars for one Senate race have been raised for both sides. President Trump was in Georgia last night at a rally, basically uh, amping up uh, a demand from his supporters that they basically go into the streets and use all available means to challenge the outcome of the election. Tomorrow, uh, Trump and his supporters in the Senate and in the House of Representatives are seeking to overturn the November election. And Esther, uh, we also have that leaked recording, the Washington Post leaked that it's all over the media. It was uh, Donald Trump talking to the Secretary of State in Georgia and his attorney, basically demanding that they come up with enough votes to overturn the Georgia election outcome and threatening them, basically, that if they don't do what Trump is demanding, that he's going to find a way to criminally prosecute him. Uh, Let's talk about this. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes. So tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And I think you have to say that you're going to reexamine it. We have to stand by our numbers. We believe our numbers are right. And, and Esther, before we go to you, let's hear one more audio clip from that amazing uh, call from Donald Trump, president of the United States, demanding that Georgia election officials uh, find enough votes to make him uh, the winner in the state of Georgia. And for our listeners, this is a clip from CBS this morning. Mr. President, the problem uh, you have with social media, they can, people can say anything. Uh, uh, no, this isn't social media. This is Trump media. President Trump baselessly accused Raffensperger of a cover-up and threatened that he and his general counsel may be in jeopardy. You know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. And, and you know, you can't let that happen. That's, that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyers. That's a big risk. Esther, a big risk. I mean, he's clearly threatening them. The aftermath of that call, as you said, is all over the media. And there are actually 
officials all over the country speculating about whether there could be charges brought against Trump because he is clearly violating laws around election tampering, election fraud, and we'll see where that goes. But that call it was just within three days of today's Georgia Senate runoff. And this election is being billed as determining whether Republicans or Democrats will control the U.S. Senate. And some say it will determine whether the Joe Biden administration will be able to accomplish whatever his agenda is and whatever his policies are that may be different from the Trump administration. And interesting to me is that the call is the latest in what has been a really wild ride in Georgia, which voted for a Democrat for president uh, Joe Biden for the first time since voting for Bill Clinton in 1992, I think. And then since then, Trump has been trying to overturn the election or raise biz- big objections to the vote in Georgia. Some Trumpists there are actually advocating that Republicans not show up, echoing the claims that the election is rigged. Um, and it's funny because that sounds like the playbook for Venezuela for me. It's like what's been done overseas continues to come back home. And It looks like, especially based on the latest polls, that the same population of voters that flipped the state in November has been really turning out very heavily in early voting, with more than 3 million people voting early, and with the edge going to Democratic areas. And uh, one analyst said that 115,000 people who did not even vote in November have showed up this time, and that more of half of these new voters are African-Americans. And meanwhile, a half a billion dollars has been spent in advertising alone for the runoff. And I think that's just ads. It's not the actual other kind of campaigning money that's being spent in neighborhoods or communities. And so I just returned from the Savannah area. And I can tell you that between TV ads during the college football and NFL games and all kinds of ads on radio, there is a torrent of cash flowing through Georgia media markets. And the people in Georgia are being bombarded with some pretty wild ads especially from the Republican candidates, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, uh, toward the Democratic uh, candidates, Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, who the Republicans paint as leading the United States towards socialism, like we wish, right? (laughs) And taking away uh, people's health care that we are all supposed to love so much from our employers and taking taking away our guns. So I think we have a short clip uh, with a a little compilation of some of those, those ads. If they're in charge, America will never be the same. Save America. And he's stuck on this socialist agenda that would defund the police. That kind of radical talk is a cancer that would destroy our community. This is about saving America from socialism. If the radicals take total control, we'll never get our country back. So the counting of these votes is, you know, coinciding with what should be a very pro forma counting of electoral votes in the joint session of Congress tomorrow. On Wednesday, but you know that count is also, as you said, expected to be challenged as Trumpists, uh, neo-fascists, and as well as anti-Trump groups plan to descend on DC again. So this is this week is very fraught uh, in the suites as well as in the streets. Indeed, it is, uh, Nicole. There, at the same time as Esther is helping us understand this unprecedented development, at least in modern times, for U.S bourgeois democracy, where one of the two ruling class parties does everything possible to overturn the election, even after it's been certified by the Electoral College. 
we have this uh, amazing statement. All 10 living former defense secretaries uh, have issued a statement to the media insisting that the, that the military not intervene uh, to overrule or have an impact on the election. Now, those 10 secretaries of defense include Ashton Carter. That He was, of course, Obama's secretary of defense. Dick Cheney, William Cohen, Mark Esper, yes, recently fired by Trump, Robert Gates, Chuck Hagel, Jim, James Mattis, Leon Panetta, William Perry, and Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, they say in their letter, as senior Defense Department leaders have noted, quote, there is no role for the U.S. military in determining the outcome of a U.S. election, close quote. Efforts to involve the U.S. armed forces in resolving election disputes would take us into a dangerous, unlawful, and unconstitutional territory. Civilian and military officials who direct or carry out such measures would be accountable, including potentially facing criminal penalties for the grave consequences of their actions on our republic. Now, there's no way, Nicole, that 10 living secretaries of defense, right, uh, Republicans, mildly, well, not left, but, you know, mildly less right uh, Democrats would come together and issue such an extraordinary statement if they didn't think that there was some possibility that Trump and his minions are trying to manipulate the military into an action. Anyway, that's the that's my read. Right. There's no other entity. There's no outside entity that can persuade Leon Panetta, Dick Cheney, Don Rumsfeld and Ashton Carter to all come together, among others, of course, to all come together and write this. You know, this isn't this is this is clearly a sign that all of these officials and it's really notable, I think, that so many of them are from within the Trump administration because he had so many and he fired so many. Um, it it really is a sign that this is something that they are taking very seriously. There is no other reason that this would be coming out. And when you listen to that call um, that we heard some clips from a few minutes ago, um, you know, it's 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 really clear that Trump is serious about this. I think he's been relatively quiet in terms of Twitter. He hasn't been quite as vociferous as he uh, was throughout his presidency. Um, and it seemed, you know, we were even talking on the show. I think we thought maybe Trump didn't really have a strong intention of holding on. Uh, election Day came and went with with not too much really chaos that he maybe he was just a con man raising money. But it's really starting to seem, well, not starting to seem, it is very clear at this point that especially with this letter of um, that we're talking about, that it's far more serious and that he really does intend to hang on. Indeed. And and I think that, you know, Esther and Nicole, as, as Nicole mentioned, in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this because Trump created the and his supporters created the organization Stop the Steal and then asked all of the supporters of Trump to send financial donations to help the legal challenge to stop the, the fraud. And a lot of times people don't read the fine print. And, and we did read the fine print. And the fine print says, if you send $20, like 19 of those dollars can be kept by the leadership pack of the president uh, and can be used at his discretion. And it doesn't have to go to legal expenses. In other words, only a small fraction, whatever that fraction is, can actually be used or needs to be used for legal things. So we thought, okay, since the election, 
Uh, Donald Trump has said it's fraud. Stop the steal. Send me your money. And people indeed sent them their money. And he raised, his leadership pack raised like $250 million. So we thought, okay, this is Donald Trump, the con man. Uh, he's conning his supporters. But Esther, when you look at everything, when you look at the fact that they're moving, tr trying hard to get uh, the uh, Georgia state officials to basically turn over the votes to make sure that he wins Georgia, that they're doing the same in other states, that they are calling uh, into into uh, into contention in the Senate tomorrow, the, the certification demanding that there be a, a recount. And when you see the Secretaries of Defense letter uh, saying, don't you dare authorize the military to intervene and you will be held criminally accountable, meaning to the existing officials at the Department of Defense who have been picked by Trump ever since he fired Mark Esper. When you put all of that together, you can't but come to the conclusion that this isn't simply a fundraising device by Trump, which is what we thought. It's something more serious. No, it's, it's really dangerous because like I was saying before, it's kind of this combination of what's happening in the suites as well as in the streets. You know, there's this belief that Trump may try to involve the military because he will use some act of violence or uh, this wild demonstration that he's trying to hype up for Wednesday in the district to declare martial law or to bring in those same kind of nameless quasi-anonymous uh, troops that he used in Portland and here in Washington, D.C. last June 1st when uh, peaceful protesters were dispersed and attacked by, um, I call them troops in the street. I mean, people are using other names, but to me, they were soldiers in camo, you know, dispersing people. And so I, I believe that uh, this letter, and then you remember right after that, the defense secretary at a pivotal moment opposed that move by Trump and then Mark Esper was fired. So apparently there are questions about whether Esper's replacement, I guess that's acting defense secretary Christopher Miller, will acquiesce to Trump's call for soldiers and other type of military on America's streets. And the, the last part of it that, that I'm struck by is the fact that I think that Trump used that accumulated war chests that those donations to him to really scare uh, Republican elected officials because they saw that he would be able to have this continued influence in the Republican party. You saw, uh, I guess Monday night, Kelly Loeffler, when she was introducing Trump at his rally in Georgia, saying that she was going to vote to oppose the certification. And there were 140 representatives in the house signed affidavits saying that they, you know, disagreed with the result of the election. And, you know, they have, there are members of Congress, both in the House and in the Senate, who are going to apparently uh, stand up to op oppose the certification tomorrow. So, uh, and this will be happening as Trump has called on and encouraged, you know, groups like the Proud Boys and other Trumpists to, to come back to the district tomorrow and raise havoc, you know, hence this conglomeration happening. And I, I think that that's what prompted this letter. One other thing I want to point out, I mean, we could have played 10, 20, 30 minutes of this phone call that Trump placed to Mr. Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia. It's so astounding. I mean, he is desperate to try to change this outcome that is so clear by any measure. Um, you know, he 
Trump says to Raffensperger on the on the call, you should want to have an accurate election. You're a Republican. And he replies, well, we do have an accurate election. And President Trump says, no, 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 you don't. You don't have you don't have not even close. You guys, you're off by hundreds of thousands of votes. He goes on to to say this this crazy thing where he says five thousand dead people voted. Well, no, you know, they've hand audited um, the the votes that happened in the state of Georgia. And so the Republican secretary of state says, no, that's not true. And then even, you know, at one point he says it just reeks of, of desperation because I think Trump, as we've talked about, Trump knows that, you know, if he doesn't and he didn't, if he once he's transferred out of power on the 20th of January, if he doesn't win, which he didn't do, you know, he's going to be criminally prosecuted. There are a lot of charges out there. There are a lot of um, potential charges out there. And he and his family may actually see some jail time. He's desperate. And he says uh the political people said there's no way they beat me. He is really, really desperate. That's that's the key, the desperation and uh, you know, and ego. And the other issue is the media echo chamber that Trump is living in right now. So he's hearing the same information from outlets like OAN and Newsmax. And so when he's hearing it from them and then he re- reinforces them by uh, kind of participating with them and participating with his followers, then they're they're just hearing these the same misinformation in a in a in a closed loop. And finally, for the people who live in the District of Columbia, uh, and again, D.C. has been a majority African American city for for more than a century, even more than that. Uh, now it's not a clear majority of African-American population, but a very, very large black population, people are living under a fascist reign of terror because the Proud Boys, who you could easily say are no different from the Nazis or the KKK, are coming back to D.C. tomorrow. They've all, they're already arriving. Uh, Trump promised a wild day tomorrow. Well, we saw a couple of wild days recently, Esther, and black people were being attacked by these fascists. People were being beaten down, mobs, lynch mob uh, type environment. And again, the police did nothing. In fact, they arrested uh, the people who were the targets of the Proud Boys. And you have the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, and the and the MPD knowing full well that the gun unit in the D.C. Metropolitan Police has tattoos with white supremacist insignia that the that the right wing has infiltrated the police department and even if they didn't the police function as an occupying force against black and brown communities here in Washington and again a reign of terror really in the district of columbia yeah and what was really i guess telling in the last time when police did not help progressives who were trying to organize a separate demonstration, not a counter demonstration, not in any way to confront the Nazis, but more so to have a expression of solidarity and community celebration at Black Lives Matter Plaza. That was almost totally thwarted by the police. People could not enter Black Lives Matter Plaza. So a lot of activists were kind of stuck outside the barricades with the Proud Boys, with these kind of neo-fascists. And you know, stuck in an area where they were not safe. So the people who are trying to stand up to this element coming to descend on our city are being thwarted by the police, not helped in any way uh, in, in in our attempts to organize. 
All right, let's go on to another important story. January 3rd was the anniversary of the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and uh, senior leaders of popular movements in Iraq, movements that were resisting and fighting against ISIS. General Soleimani was the most famous Iranian general. He was invited to Iraq to participate in peace talks. The Iraqi government consulted with the Trump administration. When Soleimani arrived in uh, Baghdad's airport for the peace talks and got into a car, Trump in the Pentagon had him uh, destroyed in it with a drone missile. And then, as we know, uh, Iran retaliated. It struck U.S. military bases in Iraq. It was able to easily penetrate those bases. Its missiles reached their targets, but it was done in a measured way so as not to kill a lot of Americans. Uh, many were wounded but not killed. And then Trump stepped back. He didn't retaliate for the retaliation. And the crisis ebbed. That was a year ago. We were all in the streets. The Answer Coalition helped organize demonstrations in more than 70 cities within two days. Uh, other anti-war groups like Code Pink and others also mobilized. Here we are a year later, and I just noticed uh, that as Biden, as the Biden team prepares to, to enter the White House, they're sending very mixed signals about whether Biden will, in fact, re-enter the JCPOA that Trump tied up. That's the Iran nuclear arms deal. And at the same time, the aircraft carrier Nimitz, which was set to come back to home base for R&R, I guess, has been ordered back to the Persian Gulf on this anniversary. Uh, again, the crisis between U.S. and Iran still looming. Uh, we, we interviewed Professor Mohammed Mirandi. He's a professor at the University of Tehran. He had an important editorial about what, what to expect with Biden. Uh, it was published in Middle East Eye. I'm going to read, Nicole, a couple of words to you from Mohammed's op-ed and then get you your reaction, and then we'll talk about it for a minute before we go to our last story. Mohammed writes, how can Iran negotiate with the incoming Biden regime when four Iranian nuclear scientists, including one of my colleagues at the University of Tehran, were murdered during his vice presidency, meaning during the Obama administration. How can Iran trust the new team in the White House when the incoming national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, reportedly told former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in early 2012 that, quote, Al-Qaeda was on our side in Syria? Uh, again, Nicole, the people in the Middle East want peace. The people in Iran want peace. They want to live without sanctions. But whether Biden will stand up to the right-wing pro-war critics in the Republican and Democratic Party and the foreign policy establishment, I'm very, very skeptical about that, even if he says he wants to re-enter the JCPOA. It's just so rare in mainstream American press that there's ever anything from another country's point of view unless it's another Western country. But think about what Iran has gone through. Think about the fact that this proud and strong country um, has has been under these crippling economic sanctions um, ever since they stepped out of a treaty uh, or an agreement that the U.S. stepped out of first. The JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal that the United States crafted, signed on to under the Obama administration, stuck to for a little bit, but didn't actually fully stick to it, right? They they didn't actually, the United States never fulfilled 
the obligation of removing all of the sanctions against Iran. And remember, sanctions are essentially economic war. They're targeted at people. So Iran goes into the strictest agreement that has you know, ever been crafted. Um, the other parties don't stick to their end of the bargain. Um, when a new administration comes in, they break it even further and completely opt out of it. And then Iran is just stuck sitting there saying, all we want is these economic sanctions off of our country. All we want is to be able to have food and medicine for our people. That's all we're looking for here. So when Jake Sullivan gets up and says, well, we'll just get Iran right back into the same nuclear deal. Well, why would Iran go back into the same nuclear deal that was never actually something that the United States stuck to? The foreign minister of Iran, uh, Zarif, said this in a tweet, quote, we resume 20% enrichment as legislated by our parliament. The International Atomic Energy Agency has been duly notified. Our remedial action conforms fully with paragraph 36 of the JCPOA after years of non-compliance by several other JCPOA participants. Our measures are fully reversible upon all caps, full compliance by all. Now, let me just quickly, before we move on to our last story, explain what Zarif's tweet actually means. They've gone beyond the limits of the JCPOA for uranium enrichment, so they're one step away from having a nuclear bomb material if they so desire. So they're at 20% enrichment. But he cites the paragraph in the agreement, in the JCPOA, paragraph 36, that says, if other partners in the or other participants in the agreement are not complying, Iran has the right to do just that. But this is a fully reversible decision if the others come back to the agreement in full compliance, meaning to lift the sanctions on Iran. So Iran is saying, look, we can move forward with our nuclear program or we can move backward. Your decision, Joe Biden, very clear from uh, Ron's foreign minister. Let's go on to our final story. Uh, Esther, really important news. There's been, you know, a lot of union organizing in, in sectors that were not traditionally the center or the anchor of the U.S. labor movement. Most importantly, teachers around the country have become the vanguard of the new revived labor movement. So you have a women's led labor movement uh, really coming to life and showing that the strike weapon works, that that the strike can gain concessions. Now we have high-tech workers, and of course, another important category of a new kind of workforce. They have uh, declared a union at Google. Let's talk about it. Yes, Brian. So more than 200, I guess about 226 Google workers signed union cards with the Communications Workers of America, and they are forming, I think, the Alphabet Workers Union because uh, Alphabet is the parent company of Google. And in a statement, they said they joined that company because they wanted to build technology that improves the world. Yet time and again, company leaders have put profits ahead of our concerns. We're joining together temps, vendors, contractors, and full-time employees to create a unified worker voice. We want Alphabet to be a company where workers have a meaningful say in decisions that affect us and the societies we live in. So in recent years, Google workers have protested sexual harassment at Google, uh, the company working with war technologies and working with repressive governments, the firing of a AI specialist, a black woman 
who was one of the few black women in her field, a leading innovator in her field. She was fired over her work to in bias in how AI recognizes people of color. And also she was conducting research about diversity in that field in general. And so unionizing is really very key. Interesting to me is that this is kind of like the the new frontier of communications workers, you know, this century's workers in the field of communications, which in the last century we call like mass media or journalism. Today, it's these large tech companies that lord over the information that we see and that we don't see. So, you know, they've sucked up a lion's share of the advertising dollars that used to be the lifeblood of traditional media like newspapers, magazines. So I think in last year that meant... $385 billion, 50% of all media and ad spending was spent at these uh, big tech companies, you know, Google among them. And so this is the workforce now that is being paid within corporate media. And as increasingly reporters, editors, and other journalists have been eliminated. So that's very interesting to me. You know, most of the the people I work with, especially black and brown people that I work with in corporate media, no longer have jobs as reporters, editors, or photographers, or things like that. So the fact that these Google workers are organizing under the Communications Workers of America is very important. And uh, they are pursuing the strategy of being a minority union, and it allows the employees to organize without first winning a formal vote before the NLRB, like a traditional union vote. Esther, let's also listen to a clip from a CNBC interview with Parul Kool. She's the Alphabet Workers Union Executive Chair talking about the formulation of this union. I really want to stress that this union is meant to be a democratic and open organization where any employee at the company can join and really use to further whatever cause or issue that they're facing. Um, I think some of the language of the op-ed really comes from the history of organizing at Google, which has really been about some of these like really uh, critical issues around sexual harassment or transparency around who our work is being used for. But that isn't to say that those are the only issues we're fighting for. I think the most important thing is that this is an organization for all workers. When you want to work with everybody that's interested in fighting to make Alphabet a better company. It, it's, it's so important that this new sector of the workforce is now organizing, organizing with the communication workers of America. At every stage where work changes, where work is reorganized as the means of production are revolutionized such that old jobs are, are, are disappeared, uh, old jobs are crushed, uh, new jobs are created, usually fewer jobs taking the place of more jobs. Wherever and whenever that happens, which happens throughout the development of capitalism and industrial society... In each and every time when the bosses think, oh, we finally did it. We got rid of those ornery workers. We got rid of all of those angry workers. We're replacing them with new technologies or with an even more privileged workforce. Whenever they think they've come to the end of history in terms of labor capital struggle, meaning the class struggle, they find out it's just the opposite. And the working class, uh, regardless of what the form of production is, must come together, must uh, find unity with uh, other workers, must take up the struggle against capital. Uh, as we go out, Nicole, we want to salute those workers at Google. Let them be let them be an inspiration to all of the other workers in technology companies. And even if people are high paid now, we know with the advent of new technologies, 
There'll be an additional de-skilling of the workforce. Wages will plummet. Uh, Whoever is privileged at one moment will end up uh, you know, impoverished uh, in the next stage of the of the cycle of capitalist production. That's why workers must fight together. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.